I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast. Harvard professor Andrew Ho thinks it's important standardized testing happens this spring. He's an expert on educational assessment who agrees with President Biden's recent call to resume testing. Not all educators are happy about this. Professor Ho proposes we think about testing a little differently this year and consider it more of a census. He says there's just too much we don't know about how COVID has affected learning, and testing is one way to get some insight. There's been many claims made already about COVID and learning loss in the media. I wanted to understand what we know about how students are doing and how testing is a way to make sense of this. You know, what assessment is here for is, you know, being honest about what we know and what we don't know. This is the opportunity I see for the spring is to have an improvement mindset. But in order to know what to improve, you have to start with where you're at. And we don't know where we're at. And that's the problem. Everywhere we look, we're seeing COVID slide or stories about children who are suffering because of whatever circumstance they're in. It doesn't even matter whether it's remote, whether it's hybrid, whether it's they're just not in school. So do we have the information at this point to understand what's happening for students to even corroborate any kind of real understanding of a loss? I think it's really helpful to talk about all the things that matter in education, and mm-hmm. then be very clear that standardized tests, which are my business, right, which which is what I, you know, do research on and try to improve. That's one of like you know fifty other things that we care about mm-hmm. that is receiving a disproportionate share of the emphasis right now. And that I think is okay because one thing that tests do well is ensure comparability. We know exactly where we were two years ago, and mm-hmm. so if there is a relative drop compared to where we were two years ago, we can say, okay, this is how much we have lost in terms of where we were uh, two years ago. And this is what we can do to make sure that we gain it. But there are so many other measures, right? You know, I tell my students in my statistics class, it's like one physical health, two mental health, and then three, maybe after that, we can talk about learning. Mm -hmm. But the two are necessary preconditions for the third, right? And I find it striking how, you know, little we know just about the physical and mental health of our students. Not to mention just sort of stepping back from this and saying, where are they? Mm -hmm. Like, we don't even have the same students we had two years ago. What we are about to have this spring with tests and all that we don't know, right? The first question is, who's there and who's not there? Mm -hmm. That is not a test as much as sort of a census. We have to think about this spring's assessment effort broadly as a census, because there's definitely research out there that shows that we've lost maybe like two to 10 percentile points of learning, right? If the median student now is at the sort of 48th to 40th percentile of where we expect typically, right? So they've dropped maybe like two to 10 percentile points. But stop right there and sort of say to yourself, that's their mathematical proficiencies and skills and what they're able to do in math. That's what they're able to do in reading. What about how they're doing emotionally, right? What about uh, how they're grappling with like social skills, right? And the, and the relative lack of chances to interact with each other. So first, it's one of multiple measures. And then second, who's not there? <laughs> All of that research was done 
with kids who are actually there. Right. <laughs> what I'm most worried about is the kids who aren't. And that's such an obvious thing to say, right? But right now we're like looking where the light is and we haven't noticed that the room is like half in darkness, right? It's like typically year to year, you look at what's changed in a bright room. Mm -hmm. And this year we're like, okay, well, half the room is dark, but let's talk about what's going on over here <laughs> where we happen to have a little lamp. Right. That's what I, th I fear we're missing most. So there's two blind spots that we have right now. There's two missing stories. The first about all the other measures we should be caring about beyond mathematical and reading proficiency. And then second, all the other students who are not measuring. This is super complex because we're not comparing apples to apples in any way from this year to any other year ever. So there's that element yes. of this. So I know that some states have come out and they're asking for waivers and some other things. Some states have come forth and said they don't want to do the standardized testing this year, which I guess is understandable. And President Biden, of course, has come out and said that we're going to move forward with standardized testing with some flexibility. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what that flexibility is and, and what it looks like for accountability? There's a few different signals that they've given. The first and most important from my perspective is a position I strongly agree with is that they are not requiring accountability provisioning, right? They're not going to assign any school to a designation of like needs improvement in this year where mm -hmm. it clearly wouldn't be the school's fault. It clearly wouldn't be the teacher's fault. So it would be very, very poor judgment without any scientific basis to sort of say that uh, any changes this year were due to the efforts or lack thereof of any school or teacher. So accountability provisions are off the table, which I think is extremely wise. The the second category of flexibility is the timing of assessments, right? And one indication that they've given is that they would allow testing during the fall instead of the spring. Now, I don't believe that's wise. Um, and the reason is because there's no appropriate fall baseline that we have from previous years mm -hmm. to which we can compare to tell if something is unusually good or bad as far as any indicator goes. Nonetheless, I do recognize that flexibility in particular, if there are places where they're not going to get any test scores at all, right? They test in the spring, uh, better to get something than nothing. And the third broad category of flexibility is just to remind people that they're not forcing people to take tests uh, where health conditions don't enable that to be done safely. And again, this kind of testing is rightfully tertiary, right? Physical health, mental health, and then learning. And I think the Biden administration's memo reflects that. So you have recommended that we move forward with the testing. You just said that you think we should do it in the spring. And you've already talked a little bit about thinking about this as an educational census versus an assessment. So I just want to hear a little bit more about that. What does it mean and how is it different from what we would do in a regular year? Again, I would say that my recommendation to test in the spring is conditional on, right? It requires this right. perspective. Otherwise, you will make mistakes in judgment. Why test, right? Step back from all of this and say, why would we be interested in testing in this year, given all else that's going on? And the answer is, again, very clearly laid out in the Biden administration's memo to target support, to target mm -hmm. resources. 
And if your goal is to target resources and support, first, you want to do so as soon as possible. And second, you want to do so accurately. You have a guess as to who the schools are and districts are and communities are that need the most support. And hopefully that's already being directed because you have results from two years ago. But you also have communities and schools that are especially hard hit by this pandemic. So you want to not just document the fact that some communities need support, but that there might be new communities that need support that might not have needed that support two years ago. That's why I think you need a spring baseline mm-hmm. to compare what's different this year than two years ago. Um, and so in order to do that, right, this idea of a census is, to, again, put tests appropriately tertiary, right? <laughs> like third mm-hmm. in rank after who's there, how are they doing, and then start to think about their learning. And my recommendations for how to report scores, we have to sort of step back and say first, again, who's there, mm-hmm. right? Who is in school? In an ordinary year, we know who's in a school. It's everybody, right? It's everybody right. who's usually in a public school, right? Uh, and so we can say, here are our kids and here are their scores. And you can compare them to the scores last year because it's the same population of kids. That is not the case this year. So if you have a school that two years ago had some you know, great distribution of students, and then perhaps all the high scoring students left for other schools or decided to stay at home and did not take comparable tests, or the opposite, where all the relatively low scoring students decided to go to other schools or not take the tests or or not be at home, not to mention all the other at-risk populations, including homeless students and all the other folks that public schools rightfully serve. So there are all these populations of students who in this year might not be there. And What is wonderful and necessary in our state data systems is a longitudinal record, Mm -hmm. a history of where students were two years ago. So we can actually compare the test scores of kids this year to the test scores of kids last year, not just by looking at percentages of proficient students, but saying, no, 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 you were there two years ago and now you're here and here's your score. And to say you were there two years ago and now you're not here. Now we don't have you in the picture. Now we don't have our eye on you. And so I've recommended that what states do first in their reporting is not report scores, but report a percentage of kids who are there, right? Because ordinarily that's 95 to 100%. Mm -hmm. This year it will not be. And what I think that percentage helpfully does is focus everybody's attention on two groups of people that you have to track simultaneously. First, the people that you have data for, and second, the people that you don't have data for. And what I find disappointing about the current coverage is that we're focusing on the results for the kids we have data for without focusing on the kids who we don't have a read on anymore. And I think equity and fairness requires that we focus on both groups of kids. And I also think that as we endeavor to support schools, we have to target resources and supports based on both of those categories. You know, this is not something that I had thought about, but when you have schools that are still remote, can they not administer these standardized tests? Like, do you need to be in person to take these? So is that what we're getting at here? Mm -hmm, I already know that we don't really have great data on who's in school and who's out of school. So what happens to all the kids who are in remote learning, does that prevent them from being able to take some of these standardized tests 
Yes, that's exactly right. And so I've tried to make clear you have to distinguish between the kids who aren't there because they're not even in school and the kids who are not there because they might actually have test scores. You just can't use them Mm -hmm. because maybe in the protocols that you've released for remote testing, you weren't clear enough that the parent shouldn't be looking over the kid's shoulder or on the flip side that the kid is being very distracted or doesn't have good internet access, right? We have to talk about the percentage of kids who have comparable scores and the percentage of kids who don't have comparable scores. And that percentage may be due to the fact that they're no longer in school. It may also due to the fact that they don't have in-school testing and therefore don't have comparable valid scores that are going to be interpretable without having to say, oh, and don't forget, it could be because their internet failed or it could be because they don't have accessibility because they have individualized education plans and the browser didn't support the supports that they usually have. It could be any number of reasons. Bottom line is what we in measurement care about is fair comparisons of scores. And without a controlled environment, we can't make those comparisons fairly. And what does that mean? It means if we don't pay attention to that, we're going to try to give resources to schools that don't need it and also miss giving resources to schools that do need it. Wow. This is really, really, really complicated on a whole other level that I don't think most people could even fathom. Our job is to make it simple. Behind the scenes, it's complicated. But the job of state score reporting should be to make the complicated simple. And in order to do that, like I'm hoping that you can just open up a score report and say, okay, we've got half of the usual kids that we used to have. Tell me the story of those kids. Are those kids doing better than expected or worse than expected, given what they scored a couple of years ago? Mm. That's one story. And that's a really important story. That's what a lot of the research out there is telling right now. Story one, how are the kids for whom we have comparable scores doing compared to a couple of years ago? Okay, it's like 50-50. Who are the two populations? They have their scores. How are they doing? Now, here are all the kids who no longer have comparable data, who we don't have our eye on. Tell me the story of their scores two years ago. Are these the kids that needed the most help? Or are these the kids at the top of the distribution who might not have needed help? So then you have the stories of these two populations and how different they are, and you can think about both. First, who are the results for the people who are actually in school? Second, what were the results for the people who are no longer in school? And that, I think, will help us to sort of say, okay, what's the census for this school, right? Where are all the kids who two years ago we thought would have still been here? And let's divide them in half, right? Or divide them into their two respective populations and sort of say, how are the kids doing for the kids who we have fair comparisons for? And how were the kids doing for the population we don't have our eye on anymore? So I want to talk a little bit about the learning loss issue. In a lot of ways, all of these things, the test results and the mental health and the physically being in the building amongst some other measures, all will add up to what this quote unquote learning loss picture maybe looks like or doesn't look like, right? But I want to talk a little bit about the term learning loss, because it sounds like even that is up for debate right now, whether that's the right terminology to be using. I've seen some discussion about this. Like, I don't want to spend too much time worried about what we call things, but I do think the conversation is important because the choice of what you call the term leads you to different 
solutions, right? So the idea of loss as this permanent void that you can't do anything about would be damaging because it convinces us that we should triage that. There's no hope. And Mm -hmm. so if people interpret loss that way, we definitely shouldn't call it that because it doesn't motivate us to do what we should be doing in order to make sure that we can make improvements and growth from this point. So if you choose to call it learning lag, if you choose to call it learning delayed, if you choose to call it an opportunity disparity, whatever it is, it has to be framed in a way that motivates us to solve the problem, to invest resources, to do something about it. That's the reason why there's been a debate about it, not because it's semantics, but because the choice of the word leads us to think about something as A, being fatalistic, an impossible loss we can never recover from, or B, something we should be energized to do something about. And I think as long as everyone listening to this appropriately treats this as something we can do something about, then we're in the right space no matter what we call it. I just hope then that the way we describe these disparities that, again, are solvable, these opportunities that we could be giving kids are not just in terms of reading and mathematics, but obviously in terms of all sorts of social experiences and skills, and not to mention just outright health disparities that might be out there, not to mention the 500,000 people who we've lost, who are are grandparents of kids in these schools. That is an incalculable loss. We have lost a lot. We can do things uh, about it. And we have to measure those as accurately as we can while being honest about what we don't know. When I hear you talk about it, it's really just a diagnostic tool to give you a picture of what's going on. That's a good way to describe it. It is one panel, right? Or one piece of a puzzle. I do think though, like if you want to talk about opportunities and hope for the future. I think this moment is an opportunity to reframe tests as a tool for support. I wouldn't call it diagnostic necessarily, unless we talk about it from like the aggregate level, right? You know, diagnostic is like they can't tell what every kid needs, but we can tell Mm -hmm. on average which communities need the most supports. And that, instead of like holding a stick and threatening districts, this year is a real improvement, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's a real positive to use tests, I think, appropriately as monitoring tools and not horrific incentive structures that set up perverse incentives to cheat and teach to the test. This opportunity to think of tests as the monitoring tools that they are is real progress that I hope lasts because this to me is the appropriate role of assessment as one piece of a multiple measures system that keeps an eye on a range of things we care about as we try to improve education and equity. So I see this as a a real opportunity, actually relocating tests to to where they should be in the firmament as, again, one high-level periodic tool that doesn't suck up all the air in the room the way it usually does. That's where these tests should be, and I hope that's where they stay. Andrew Ho is a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He is a psychometrician focused on improving the design, use, and interpretation of test scores and education. I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast produced by the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thanks for listening.